Twelve Byzantine Rulers by Lars Brownworth. Episode 1 Introduction. The purpose of these lectures are to provide a general outline of Byzantine history, but two words of caution before I begin. The first is that I will do my best, but will probably butcher the pronunciation of any Greek word, so take it with a grain of salt. If you hear it pronounced in a different way by someone else, go with the way they say it. It's probably much closer. The second one is that these lectures are in no way comprehensive, and they are in no way adequate to describing all of Byzantine history. It is, any way you slice it, over a thousand years. Uh, there are currently two ways of telling history that are very much in vogue these days. The first is to tell the story with broad strokes by the great isms, communism, feminism, materialism, and so on. The second is to tell history through the eyes of the everyman and every woman, how they saw the world and how the world saw them. Uh, this is especially true in America. We, we take great pride in rooting for the underdog. Uh, we identify with the common man much more than with the nobility, so much so in fact that we even have laws to the effect that you can't bring titles with you when you become a citizen. Everyone is equal. I've always found both of these ways of telling history distinctly and extremely uninteresting. I believe history is the story of individuals as much or more than the story of masses or movements. While it's true, as Bobby Kennedy said, that few will have the greatness to bend history itself, without the driving spirits of the age, you really wouldn't have these lasting movements. It might be interesting to find out what a peasant in Macedonia thought of Alexander the Great, but Alexander's story is much more important to understand history. How much of the Reformation would you understand without knowing Martin Luther or Zwingli or Calvin? How much of the American Revolution would you know without first knowing Washington or Hamilton or Franklin or King George or William Pitt? So I'm going to try to follow uh, that nameless author of the lives of the later Caesars and tell this story of Byzantine history as much as possible through the eyes of 12 key figures instead of broad historical movements or through the eyes of the common man. So, Byzantine history. Where do we begin? In the words of one English writer, I suppose we should begin at the beginning and continue to the end. Sounds quite simple, but actually it's quite difficult. What is a Byzantine? What was the Byzantine Empire? It's really a misleading term and a loaded question. By using the word Byzantine, you're actually drawing a distinction that may or may not be there. I'll explain what I mean, but first let me give you a simple answer. Most historians would say that the Byzantine Empire begins with the Roman Emperor Constantine when he refounds the city of Byzos, or Byzantium, and it's renamed Constantinople in his honor. Much to his surprise, I'm sure. He intends to, uh, with this to have a new capital for the Roman Empire, or at least a co-capital. But this will be a Christian capital, an imperial capital, to rival or even surpass that of Rome. It ends in 1453 with the death of the emperor Constantine Palaeologus dying in the streets of Constantinople, fighting the Turks. Now, here we run into our first problem. Namely, Constantine the Great was a Roman, indisputably, in a direct line of emperors going all the way back to Augustus, the first Roman emperor. But by calling him the founder of a Byzantine empire, he's actually being called something other than Roman. Some scholars don't really know what to do with this, so they call it the Eastern Roman Empire or the Later Roman Empire. The question is really, why are we calling it a Byzantine Empire? Where did that word come from? First, let me make it clear that the Byzantines themselves did not call themselves by that name. 
In fact, they wouldn't have known what you were talking about if you had referred to them by that name. They simply considered themselves Roman. In the year 285 AD, the Emperor Diocletian split up the empire into eastern and western halves, and for a time Constantinople was the capital of the eastern half of the empire, off and on. But by 480, after the western half had fallen, there really was no longer any need to draw a distinction between east and west. The eastern part could be dropped, and it could simply be called the Roman Empire. That was the name by which they knew themselves, and by which their neighbors knew them. There had been a long cultural and political shift eastward, and certainly by the 8th century, the language and culture of the empire was thoroughly Greek. That, however, did not affect their perception of themselves, and in fact, even today, there are places in the world where the word Romanoi means Greek. Much later, in the 17th and 18th century, historians started looking at it and saying, well, you can't really call it Roman because it didn't even control Rome for most of its history. Apparently, this wasn't a problem for the Holy Roman Empire, uh, but the name Constant Constantinopolitan Empire was really as you can tell, too unwieldy uh, to say. So they went back to Constantinople's original name of Byzantium. And from there we get the name Byzantine Empire. I have at this point to take a short detour into the historiography of Byzantine scholarship. The Byzantine Empire got its reputation mostly from the work of a man named Edward Gibbon. He's considered to be the first modern historian. He published the first volume of his brilliant Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, uh, the same year Thomas Jefferson penned the Declaration of Independence, 1776. Uh, it's still a must-read, even after more than 200 years. He was writing uh, before there really was a serious field of archaeology, so he relied mostly on written sources, primary if he could get them, and with extreme reluctance, secondary sources. Uh, so Gibbon is a pretty good source to use. He was a very serious youth, uh, and he converted to Roman Catholicism, and his anxious family got his Protestant uncle to talk him out of it. He became, because of this, deeply disillusioned by Christianity and looked down on any Christian society. And this gave him quite an abysmal opinion of Byzantium, which he considered to be nothing more than a thousand years of decline and decay. In his words, it was a degenerate mongrel of Greece and Rome, which lost the city of Rome and spoke bad Greek. The whole medieval period, in fact, was dark and barbaric. The Western Empire had fallen shortly after adopting Christianity. Gibbon saw a clear corollary here. And the Eastern Empire, though Christian from the outset, had, with its constant intrigue and coups, absolutely nothing to recommend it. A hundred years after Gibbon, in fact, authors were still writing in the same vein. This is a quote from uh, an author writing in the year 1869. Of that Byzantine Empire, the universal verdict of history is that it constitutes, without a single exception, the most thoroughly base and despicable form that civilization has yet assumed. There has been no other enduring civilization so absolutely destitute of all the forms and elements of greatness. Its vices were the vices of men, who had ceased to be brave without learning to be virtuous. Slaves and willing slaves, in both their actions and their thoughts, immersed in sensuality and the most frivolous pleasures. The people only emerge from their listlessness when some theological subtlety or some chivalry in the chariot race stimulated them to frantic riots. The history of the empire is a monotonous story of the intrigues of priests, eunuchs, and women, of poisonings, of conspiracies, 
of uniform ingratitude, of perpetual fratricides. Unfortunately, this view really has persisted and resulted in an almost a conspiracy of silence, where, the Byzant where Byzantine history has uh, largely been ignored. Most people, including myself, were taught that the Roman Empire fell in 476 and seem therefore to think that the Middle Ages, or the Middle East rather, went from a classical past to a Muslim present with nothing in between. This does not result, I think, from any active decision not to learn or teach about it, but from a Western disregard dating from before the Crusades, uh, made up of equal parts envy and disgust. Sadly, Western Christendom does not care overly much about its Eastern brothers back then, and it doesn't seem to care now. The institution with the strongest Byzantine legacy, the Orthodox Church, has had a tragic history and is being persecuted right out of existence even today while the West sleeps on. Now, the burning question in academic circles is, if the name Byzantine was only much later applied to them, and they referred to themselves as Roman, should we be calling them Byzantine? Or to put it another way, were, the Ro were they Romans or not? Part of the confusion here, I think, is that the empire lasted for so long. Anything that lasts a long time changes if it's living. Anyone who sat through a Shakespeare class in high school knows that language changes. It's been, what, 400 years since he wrote? And to your average high schooler, it's almost like a different language. You wonder what they're talking about. It takes a while to unlock that language and figure out what those plays are about. And that's only been 400 years. Imagine a society that's a thousand years old. People are looking at the Byzantine Empire uh, in 1453, which closely resembled an eastern potentate. You have the Emperor John Cansicumus visiting Europe, calling himself a Roman Emperor, dressed in headgear resembling a turban, in slippers, attended by eunuchs, and performing all these effeminate Eastern ceremonies. He's nothing like what people remember Rome was. So when you're comparing the Byzantine Empire, what it was at the end, to a Rome that was no longer living, was actually in effect fossilized in the year 476, of course you're going to come out thinking that they are drastically different, or at least thinking, whatever this is, it's not Roman. So one side of the debate, the debate is saying there is a fundamental difference in the founding of Constantinople. You have a city which is distinct, that is something other than Roman, because it is imperial, it is Christian, and it is metropolitan. And the empire that will be controlled from this city therefore reflects that change as and is in effect Byzantine rather than Roman. Other scholars say no, this is actually a continuation of the Roman classical past uh, and not anything different. For a long time there really had been a shift happening from west to east and you can't make an artificial distinction. It is changing and evolving over time but it is in essence the Roman Empire. Personally, I think each side has a point here. Uh, you have to recognize that the empire of 1453 was radically different from that of the empire of Augustus, to the point of non-recognition. The language was Greek, the society was Greek, and the entire culture looked east instead of west. But to be fair, a Roman living in the time of Brutus and other Roman founding fathers would have been absolutely horrified by the changes that had happened in Augustus' time. Rome went from a society that abhorred tyrants to a society that actively sought an emperor in one generation. 
for example, there are many stories uh, in early Rome uh, of people who are willing to, for example, burn off one of their hands, then submit to a king. And you go from that into, at Augustus's death, people don't even look to restore the Republic. They just look who's going to be emperor. They just assume that they're going to be ruled by a tyrant from now on. Uh, that's quite a drastic change. Uh, how like would our society be um, to one that exists a thousand years from now, even if it's in the same place? Byzantine history is Roman history. The later Roman Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire, it's still the Roman Empire. And Constantine Palaeologus, the last emperor, was the 137th emperor in an unbroken line all the way back to Augustus Caesar. The word Byzantine, like so many neat historical constructs, is an artificial term which would be unrecognizable to the people whom it describes. But it is a convenient term that indicates a significant change in a society and describes a whole section of lost or ignored history. So I don't think we should go around renaming things, and I will use that term, Byzantine, from now on. So the only question is, where should I place the beginning of Byzantine history? Three candidates immediately jump out. 285, when Diocletian split the empire into eastern and western halves. 324, when Constantine started building a new capital on the Bosphorus. Or 330, when the new city of Constantinople was dedicated. All the differences that I can see between Byzantium and Rome stem from the shift from east to west, economically, politically, and socially, and not from a new city, however influential it became, so the most logical place to start is with the Emperor Diocletian in the troubled 3rd century. So, next time we'll look at the brilliant, ambitious Emperor who saved the Roman world and then walked away. Twelve Byzantine Rulers is a podcast written and recorded by Lars Brownworth, author of the book Lost to the West, The Forgotten Byzantine Empire That Rescued Western Civilization. Look for Lost to the West on Amazon.com or at your local bookstore. Visit us at 12byzantinerulers.com.